Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coinos Hermes, and deep bow to Sophia. We are looking at five errors of embodiment. The somatic revolution is upon us, along with the psychedelic renaissance, and so many other really noble attempts to heal and rejuvenate the world we share together, and we just want to look at the ways the wisdom traditions can help us do an even better job than we're already doing. And the problems seem kind of deep, so we want to do the best we can. We want to try to take a wisdom-based approach to everything, an approach rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. So let's consider that in relationship to embodiment. Because a lot of times, people who express an interest in embodiment don't study the wisdom traditions very deeply. It's as if the body's going to tell us everything, and this is just a new kind of duality. The fourth error we're going to consider is mistaking mind-body unity as the goal. That seems to be sometimes what we get hooked into. Really, the goal has to be liberation. The liberation of all beings, really. Mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, and mutual liberation of self and world. We get into our body what happens to the world. The world might get further degraded. And that goal of liberation includes insight. You could say it, it's not just that it includes it. We can't really arrive at the liberation without a profound, transformative insight into the non-locality of mind and the ecology of mind, the ecological nature of mind. Mind as interwovenness, the interwovenness we see all around us that we call ecology. And even then, when we refer to ecologies, we don't necessarily refer to interwovenness. Because that interwovenness has such subtlety. Now, we touched on this error in certain ways already above. All these errors are interwoven. The whole practice and realization of embodiment is interwoven with everything else. At a basic level, it seems important to connect our somatic practices, whatever they are, it might be dance, it might be yoga, it might be whatever your practice. It seems really essential. The wisdom traditions invite us to directly connect them with liberation, to make that the intention. Sometimes when we're in a yoga pose, we're not intending the liberation of all beings. Sometimes when we're trying to get into our body, we just want to feel good. And that's okay, that's great. But could we first raise up that good mind, that awakening mind? And we can elaborate some of this when we discuss the next error, as well as when we discuss how to leap beyond all five of these errors, how to dissolve them, dispel them, leap beyond them, and realize something a little bit broader and deeper, more wondrous, magical. But it seems important to acknowledge our fullest potential as transcending what we might ordinarily associate with the idea of mind-body unity, or generally the ideas around embodiment and somatics. We could potentially become somatic or kinesthetic geniuses 
exceptionally skilled at embodiment more narrowly construed. And we might nevertheless remain about as spiritually confused upon reaching that level of somatic realization as when we started out. It's a funny thing to think about. We could think of this a a slightly different way. We have somatic geniuses on our Olympic and professional sports teams. But we know these somatic geniuses as connected or in tune with their bodies as they might be They still suffer. And they may suffer overtly from what we call mental health crisis, mental health problems, challenges, however we want to talk about that. Their somatic realizations do not come with any guarantee of spiritual liberation or mental well-being or ecological well-being. We have people breaking more and more records, doing crazier and crazier things, taking their bodies, their embodiment to extremes, and ecologies continue to degrade. We don't think of gymnasts and ballet dancers as the saints and sages of our culture. And we don't think of extreme athletes, even our beloved surfers and climbers who speak in such spiritual terms about their sport. We don't think of them as having brought to perfection all the wisdom, love, and beauty a human being can realize in a lifetime. And we may love and admire some of these kinesthetic geniuses. And they may have had marvelous experiences, maybe even some significant insights. They may say things that resonate with the wisdom traditions, but they so far haven't appeared as world-turning teachers and liberators of souls. And that's not a criticism. We don't really expect them to. It's always been this way. In the context of the dominant culture, we could suggest very clearly that instead of becoming more embodied in some crucial sense, we really need to become more ecologied or maybe encosmosed more liberated into the mysteries of interwovenness, liberated into sacredness and wonder. And if embodied, that word, if that word signifies getting into our body, it misses this true need, not just our need, but the world's need, what the world is asking us for. It misses that need in a variety of ways. Considering the state of the world, it seems evident that we need to release into our living, loving ecologies, into our cosmic level vision, release into true peace, love, healing, and joy, including sympathetic joy. That's all relational. And sometimes when we're talking about getting in our body, we're really going in, you know? It almost gets disconnected. Not always. Sometimes people do a a little bit better job, but really are we becoming ecologied in cosmos? How do we touch a profound cosmic meaningfulness that transcends embodiment as the dominant culture tends to have us conceive of it, whether we agree of such conceptions or not? Because we can say things intellectually, 
It doesn't matter because we walk around in the conceptions, the concepts of the dominant culture, and they affect our thinking in ways we cannot perceive. It's the nature of ignorance. If we could see our ignorance, if we knew what its scope and limitations were, we wouldn't be ignorant. And when we get really into our body, we can miss the ecology of mind as well as the non-locality of mind, which is even really the non-locality of body. Now, of course, something like the opposite holds as well. By means of more skillful and expansive experience, the relative body, the relational body, becomes a liberating aspect of a larger mandala, And by means of our embodiment, we can directly participate in the whole. Not easy to do. That requires magic. As with the other three errors we've discussed so far, we don't find this one absolute and unresolvable. None of these errors are absolute. We find nuances. We find people doing a better job at some aspects, maybe not such a good a job at others. And in any case, wherever we could find the error, we have to be honest. We have to try to dig these errors out. We have to want to end all forms of self-deception. And we have the confidence from the sages of the world traditions all around the world. These sages tell us, look, it's possible. You're more than you realize. Our practice of a holistic philosophy of life can help us experience the non-locality of mind and the ecological nature of mind as well, in, through, and as our embodiment, though also transcending it. And it's interesting, former student in one of the courses that I teach had just contacted one of my partners a co-teacher, I don't mean a life partner, I mean a partner in teaching, and was talking about, of all things, remote viewing, which is a fascinating example of the non-locality of mind. Really, really interesting set of phenomena that we don't fully understand. And I was talking about how Russell Targ, when he gave a TED Talk about remote viewing, And we might feel skeptical, but as Russell Targ points out, the CIA and the military are not really indulgent of woo-woo. They don't fund a program for two decades because they like woo and just want to see where it goes. You have to show them something. And at the end of that talk, he said, well, if you want to understand remote viewing, which is really to to tap into this non-locality of mind, just read Padmasambhava. That was a real shock whenever I heard him give that talk because Padmasambhava is a famous philosopher, one of the most famous in the, especially the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And he was essentially saying, the wisdom traditions teach you how to tap into the non-locality of mind. We have a lot to learn from those traditions. We shouldn't try to reinvent embodiment. And we're learning. We're learning all the time. We have so much to learn. And I think part of the connection here for us, for this error, is to see the mindedness of our ecologies as well as the ecology of mind. 
that embodiment means cultivating a mind of ecology and practicing and realizing larger ecologies of mind. And I always think of Gregory Bateson here because he tried to help us see that evolution itself is a mental process. It's a process that happens through bodies. But in the spirit of a more holistic vision, we can think of evolution as a sacred, cosmic, ecological process inherently involving embodiment, but not strictly limited to what we conventionally refer to as bodies or the body. We may even suggest that we need ensoulment more than we need embodiment. As long as ensoulment involves the mystery and paradox of the non-duality and non-locality of mind and matter. But we certainly need to suggest that much of the current theory and practice related to embodiment lacks sufficient ecological engagement and generally generally lacks sufficient engagement with the wisdom traditions. As one example, ecstatic trance dancing in a built environment can make us feel a blissful union of mind and body, relatively speaking. While it does little to nothing for the ecologies we depend on and may overall merely degrade them. I mean, think about that, that you can go into a built environment, you can go into a building, get taken through an ecstatic dance experience, and mainly what has happened during that, you feel great, you feel the unity of mind and body, you might experience some level of ecstasy, but the world has been degraded in the process. Because you had to drive there, you have to power the music system and run, run the building, if there's climate control, whatever there might be. None of this is free from ecological cost. And you haven't necessarily arrived at any insight into the ecology of mind that made your ecstatic experience possible. You just feel good. And there's nothing wrong with our wanting to feel good. The question is, what is that good? And how do we arrive at it? What are the truly ethical, wise, loving, compassionate, graceful, truly beautiful ways to arrive at insight that heals and rejuvenates self and world at the same time? And these same sorts of reflections hold with our massive festivals. Massive festivals staged in ecologies basically invaded by humans in accord with their fragmented human purposes. Tens of thousands of human beings can assemble in a place where no typical human beings actually live. Supported by the extraction and the conquest consciousness that allows them to get there and stay there for a brief spell, they can feel ecstatic. They can feel embodied and relational, sense of community. But what about the community of life? What about the fact that their ecstasy, their experience of embodiment and community and liberation in all these very relative and somewhat narrow terms, it has depended fully on conquest consciousness 
and seems in various ways out of touch with a fuller vision of skillful embodiment. When people leave such festivals, and of course I have a particularly big one in mind, they may feel quite satisfied as they tell themselves that they have left no trace. And we have to put that in quotes, no trace. We have to put that in quotes because the very notion that we could or should leave no trace stands in contradiction to any skillful and realistic understanding of embodiment. We leave a trace. Everything we do matters. If the cosmos is interwovenness all the way through and through, then everything we do matters, and it leaves a trace. It ripples through the whole luminous, living, loving web. We definitely need community. We need liminal spaces. We need vibrant rites and rituals, vitalizing ceremonies and celebrations. And I'm sure as heck not saying we shouldn't dance. Everybody who knows me knows I agree with Emma Goldman. If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. The point is that our activities in the name of community or dancing or both can seem to bring us closer to mind-body unity while functionally forestalling our fullest liberation because they ultimately keep us less ecologically and spiritually insightful than we could become. We also need to recognize in a general way that our practices of embodiment, however well-intentioned, will not in and of themselves free us from the problems of spiritual materialism and spiritual anosognosia. It's a fancy set of terms there. Spiritual materialism just means our practice of embodiment, even though we may engage with it precisely to alleviate suffering and ignorance, it can nevertheless perpetuate suffering and ignorance in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. And spiritual anosognosia, anosognosia means the process of perpetuating ignorance can unfold without our awareness. The anosognosia, you might recognize the word gnosis in there. We're not aware. We lack a self-awareness of what we don't know. Spiritual anosognosia indicates that any ignorance we have arises with unknown nature and limits. And we touched on that at the beginning of this contemplation. If we admit any ignorance at all, it means we, we must, of necessity, lack the insight and understanding to see how that ignorance affects and limits us. So if anybody who can say, well, sure, I'm not completely omniscient, I have some ignorance, then you have to confess your stuckness. It just goes with the territory. If you've got any ignorance at all, you don't know where it's at, what its limits are, or how it affects you. We're all in that boat, together. We don't know everything, and we don't know what we don't know. Now that can sound from one perspective almost goofy, but it has profound effects in our lives. 
and should encourage a tremendous amount of humility in relation to our practices of embodiment and our whole practice of life. It really should discourage us from trying to invent things on our own. It should discourage us from ignoring the wisdom traditions. Why wouldn't we turn to spiritual geniuses who have been at this for centuries? Sometimes in our exuberance about embodiment, we can get hooked by the idea that we have all the answers within us. And there's that relative term, within, really. And where's that within? You go in far enough, you're going to be out. <laughs> Again, I sometimes joke that instead of saying the, the way out is in, we should say the way in is out. We can't sense that the very means we used to arrive at whatever answers or insights we think have come to us, those very means often constitute what now remains off-limits. Our very practices of embodied knowledge create the altered horizon of our ignorance. The dominant culture limits and restricts us in so many ways. We can't see them all. We could even characterize the culture as a culture of ignorance. It's a really troubling thing to contemplate. We have a lot of knowledge, so it seems, but also a high degree of ignorance. Because of this very fact, we can discover pathways for transformative healing and insight that seem magical in their potency for liberating us from ignorance. We may feel, at least that way, we may feel, oh my gosh, this has changed me, this has been so good, and maybe we share it, and others say, oh yes, that's wonderful. But we may not fully recognize how fragmentary and limited our insights might yet be. And thus we can remain unwittingly, unknowingly stuck in fragmentation. And this has to do both with general human fallibility, just that we are fallible creatures, and also general human ignorance, that deeper problem. It's not just that we make mistakes. You see, that's our fallibility. You can know a lot and you still make a mistake. And then there's the deeper problem of just not realizing that we actively misknow reality. That's what ignorance comes down to. And embodiment simply cannot save us from our errors, our fallibility. It cannot save us from all of our fallibility. It can't happen. Not what we are referring to as embodiment. Some of us may wonder if we can ever be free from fallibility. People can make mistakes. So embodiment's not going to fix that. Nor will embodiment save us all by itself from all of our ignorance. Now somehow, liberation from ignorance will have a deep relationship with our embodiment, but embodiment's not going to do it. And so people can become convinced that the body has all the answers and that becomes a real problem. They can become convinced that in some way or other we can just check in with the body and it will give us the guidance we need. And that's dualistic already. The body knows. 
problems. And we've mentioned this in the context of a, a previous error, this idea that the body knows. It's dualistic, and it can get unintentionally egotistical and self-centered. Our notions about having all the answers ourselves, within ourselves, can cover over the interwovenness of all things. That includes the interwovenness of our knowing. For instance, it makes a big difference if we ask whether a certain action is good or if we ask if its benefits outweigh its total costs to all sentient beings. A trauma-informed yoga retreat in Bali or Bora Bora or Patagonia might bring all manner of benefits to my embodiment. And we can put my in quotes, we can put embodiment also in quotes. So that trauma-informed yoga retreat, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, might bring me all sorts of benefits, and I certainly have a right to heal, but at what cost to the community of life? Is that particular path of healing really okay with the world? Is this the real cost that my healing must have? and should have for the world? Or can I heal in ways that don't cost the world quite so much? Can I heal in accord with practices that don't force me to take so much from the world because I'm caught in an ecology of taking? The dominant culture arises as an ecology of taking, and the variety and subtlety of all that taking can remain invisible to us, that is, those of us infected with conquest consciousness. And it's an infection, so you can get it no matter what color your skin, whatever your cultural heritage, you might have a little touch of this virus, and it can obscure our vision. And so here again, we seem to need more than embodiment as typically construed. And we need to remember that people can say lovely things about embodiment, including flowery suggestions about the relationship between embodiment and ecology, ethics, values, and the great mystery itself. It can sound good. But part of critical embodiment, that idea we suggested previously, to go with critical thinking, you know, which means discernment. Part of critical embodiment would involve a great deal of care and compassion. So we truly heal self and world at the same time. And that's really, I think, an essential part of embodiment the rejuvenation of self and world at the same time, a better lifestyle, a better livelihood, more rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty. 
Now, if you'd like to get started with some ecologically oriented practices of embodiment, you can click on the link in the show notes to get a free PDF of practices that can help you plant seeds of a more ecological and sacred embodiment. These are just, it's not a complete thing, you know, it's its part of. There's much more to be said, but it might be a set of practices and suggestions that you hadn't quite put together, at least not in the way they're presented here. And it's an excerpt from a book on wisdom-based learning in general. And that's what we're talking about. How do we have a wisdom-based learning that involves the practice and realization of the synchronicity of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos? To synchronize heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos and experience the synchronicity, the unboundedness, the non-locality, the non-duality of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos. So click in the show notes. You can get that. Totally free. And in the meantime, between now and next time, we have one more error. I think we're going to have to divide the fifth one into two. It's a kind of thick one. And uh, I'm looking forward to thinking through that with you. If you have any reflections, questions, stories about your somatic practice, your somatic realizations your sense of embodiment, how that's changing, what you think about the cultural relationship to embodiment, anything that we've addressed in any of these errors, please send it in through dangerouswisdom.org. You never know. I always like hearing from people. At the, sometimes maybe I'll just email you back. Other times, maybe we might be able to bring a question into a future contemplation if it fits in. So in any case, I always look forward to hearing from you. Until next time... This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul, your body and soul, and the body and soul of the world are not two things. So take good care of them. <laughs> <laughs>